Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Chapter 10 of Sailing Alone Around the World This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant Sailing Alone Around the World by Joshua Slocum Chapter 10 Consisting of Running to Port Angosto in a Snowstorm A defective sheet-rope places the spray in peril The spray as a target for a Fuegian arrow The island of Alan Eric Again in the open Pacific The run to the island of Juan Fernandez an absentee king, at Robinson Crusoe's anchorage. Another gale had then sprang up, but the wind was still fair, and I had only twenty-six miles to run for Port Angosto, a dreary enough place, where, however, I would find a safe harbour in which to refit and stow cargo. I carried on sail to make the harbour before dark, and she fairly flew along, all covered with snow, which fell thick and fast, till she looked like a white winter bird. Between the storm-bursts I saw the headland of my port, and was steering for it when a floor of wind caught the mainsail by the lee, jibbed it over, and dear, dear, how nearly was this the cause of disaster, for the sheet parted, and the boom unshipped, and it was then close upon night. I worked till the perspiration poured from my body to get things adjusted and in working order before dark, and above all to get it done before the sloop drove to leeward of the port of refuge. Even then I did not get the boom shipped in its saddle. I was at the entrance of the harbour before I could get this done, and it was time to haul her to or lose the port. Like a bird with a broken wing, she made the haven. The accident which so jeopardised my vessel and cargo came from a defective sheet-rope, one made from sisal, a treacherous fibre, which has caused a deal of strong language among sailors. I did not run the spray into the inner harbour of Port Angosto, but came to inside a bed of kelp under a steep bluff on the port-hand going in. It was an exceedingly snug nook, and to make doubly sure of holding on here against all willy-wars, I moored her with two anchors, and secured her besides by cables to trees. 
However, no wind ever reached there except back floors from the mountains on the opposite side of the harbour. There, as elsewhere in that region, the country was made up of mountains. This was the place where I was to refit, and whence I was to sail direct once more for Cape Pillar and the Pacific. I remained at Port Angosto some days, busily employed about the sloop. I stowed the tallow from the deck to the hold, arranged my cabin in better order, and took in a good supply of wood and water. I also mended the sloop's sails and rigging, and fitted a jigger which changed the rig to a yawl, though I called the boat a sloop just the same, the jigger being merely a temporary affair. I never forgot, even at the busiest time of my work there, to have my rifle by me ready for instant use. For I was of necessity within range of savages, and I had seen Fuegian canoes at this place when I anchored in the port further down the reach, on the first trip through the strait. I think it was on the second day, while I was busily employed about decks, that I heard the swish of something through the air close by my ear, and heard a zip-like sound in the water, but saw nothing. Presently, however, I suspected that it was an arrow of some sort, for just then one passing not far from me struck the mainmast, where it struck fast, vibrating from the shock, a Fuegian autograph. A savage was somewhere near. There could be no doubt about that. I did not know but he might be shooting at me with a view to getting my sloop and her cargo and so I threw up my old Martini Henry, the rifle that kept on shooting, and the first shot uncovered three Fuegians who scampered from a clump of bushes where they had been concealed, and made over the hills. I fired away a good many cartridges, aiming under their feet to encourage their climbing. My dear old gun woke up the hills, and at every report all three of the savages jumped as if shot, but they kept on, and put Fuego real estate between themselves and the spray as fast as their legs could carry them. I took care then, more than ever, that all my firearms should be in order, and that a supply of ammunition should always be at hand. But these savages did not return, and although I put tacks on deck every night, I never discovered that any more visitors came, and I had only to sweep the deck of tacks carefully every morning after. As the days went by, the season became more favourable for a chance to clear the strait with a fair wind, and so I made up my mind after six attempts, being driven back each time, to be in no further haste to sail. The bad weather on my last return to Port Angosto for shelter brought the Chilean gunboat Condor and the Argentine cruiser Azorpado into port. As soon as the latter came to anchor, Captain Mascarella, the commander, sent a boat to the spray, with the message that he would take me in tow for Sandy Point if I would give up the voyage and return, the thing farthest from my mind. The officers of the Azopardo told me that coming up the strait after the spray on her first passage through, they saw Black Pedro, and learned that he had visited me, the Azopardo, being a foreign man of war, has no right to arrest the Fuegian outlaw, but her captain blamed me for not shooting the rascal when he came to my sloop. 
I procured some cordage and other small supplies from these vessels, and the officers of each of them mustered a supply of warm flannels, of which I was most in need. With these additions to my outfit, and with the vessel in good trim, though somewhat deeply laden, I was well prepared for another bout with the southern, misnamed Pacific, Ocean. In the first week of April, south-east winds, such as appear about Cape Horn in the fall and winter seasons, bringing better weather than that experienced in the summer, began to disturb the upper clouds. A little more patience, and the time would come for sailing with a fair wind. At Port Angosto I met Professor Dusen of the Swedish Scientific Expedition to South America and the Pacific Islands. The professor was camped by the side of a brook at the head of the harbour, where there were many varieties of moss in which he was interested, and where the water was, as his Argentine cook said, muy rico. The professor had three well-armed Argentines along in his camp to fight savages. They seemed disgusted when I filled water at a small stream near the vessel, slighting their advice to go further up into the greater brook, where it was muy rico. But they were all fine fellows, though it was a wonder that they did not all die of rheumatic pains from living on wet ground. Of all the little haps and mishaps to the spray at Port Angosto, of the many attempts to put to sea and of each return for shelter, it is not my purpose to speak. Of hindrances there were many to keep her back, but on the thirteenth day of April, and for the seventh and last time, she weighed anchor from that port. Difficulties, however, multiplied all about in so strange a manner that, had I been given to superstitious fears, I should not have persisted in sailing on a thirteenth day, notwithstanding that a fair wind blew in the offing. Many of the incidents were ludicrous. When I found myself, for instance, disentangling the sloop's mast from the branches of a tree, after she had drifted three times round a small island against my will, it seemed more than one's nerves could bear, and I had to speak about it, so I thought, or die of lockjaw, and I apostrophized the spray as an impatient farmer might his horse or his ox. "'Didn't you know?' cried I. "'Didn't you know that you couldn't climb a tree?' But the poor old spray had essayed, and successfully too, nearly everything else in the Strait of Magellan, and my heart softened towards her when I thought of what she had gone through. Moreover, she had discovered an island. On the charts, this one that she had sailed around was traced as a point of land. I named it Allan Eric Island, after a worthy literary friend whom I had met in strange by-places, and put up a sign, Keep off the grass which, as discoverer, was within my rights. Now, at last, the spray carried me free of Tierra del Fuego. If by a close shave only, still she carried me clear. Though her boom actually hit the beacon rocks to leeward as she lugged on sail to clear the point, the thing was done on the 13th of April, 1896. But a close shave and a narrow escape were nothing new to the spray. The waves doffed their white caps beautifully to her in the strait that day before the southeast wind, the first true winter breeze of the season from that quarter, and here she was out on the first of it, 
with every prospect of clearing Cape Pillar before it should shift. So it turned out. The wind blew hard, as it always blows about Cape Horn, but she had cleared the great tide-race off Cape Pillar and the Evangelistas, the outermost rocks of all, before the change came. I remained at the helm humouring my vessel in the cross-seas, for it was rough, and I did not care to let her take a straight course. It was necessary to change her course in the combing seas, to meet them with what skill I could when they rolled up ahead, and to keep off when they came up abeam. On the following morning, April 14, only the tops of the highest mountains were in sight, and the spray making good headway on a northwest course soon sank these out of sight. Hooray for the spray, I shouted to seals, seagulls, and penguins, for there were no other living creatures about, and she had weathered all the dangers of Cape Horn. Moreover, she had on her voyage around the Horn salved a cargo of which she had not jettisoned a pound, and why should not one rejoice also in the main chance coming so of itself? I shook out a reef, and set the whole jib for having sea-room I could square away two points. This brought the sea more on her quarter, and she was the wholesomer under a press of sail. Occasionally an old south-west sea rolling up combed athwart of her, but did no harm. The wind freshened as the sun rose half-mast or more, and the air, a bit chilly in the morning, softened later in the day, but I gave little thought to such things as these. One wave in the evening, larger than others that had threatened all day, one such as sailors call fine-weather seas, broke over the sloop fore and aft. It washed over me at the helm, the last that swept over the spray off Cape Horn. It seemed to wash away old regrets. All my troubles were now astern. Summer was ahead, all the world was again before me. My wind was even literally fair. My trick at the wheel was now up, and it was five p.m. I had stood at the helm since eleven o'clock the morning before, or thirty hours. Then was the time to uncover my head, for I sailed alone with God. The vast ocean was again around me, and the horizon was unbroken by land. A few days later the spray was under sail, and I saw her for the first time with a jigger spread. This was indeed a small incident, but it was the incident following a triumph. The wind was still south-west, but it had moderated, and roaring seas had turned to gossiping waves that rippled and pattered against her sides as she rolled among them, delighted with their story. Rapid changes went on those days, in things all about while she headed for the tropics. New species of birds came around, albatrosses fell back, and became scarcer and scarcer, lighter gulls came in their stead, and pecked for crumbs in the sloop's wake. On the tenth day from Cape Pillar a shark came along, the first of its kind on this part of the voyage to get into trouble. I harpooned him, and took out his ugly jaws. I had not till then felt inclined to take the life of any animal, but when John Shark hove in sight my sympathy flew to the winds. It is a fact that in Magellan I let pass many ducks that would have made a good stew, for I had no mind in the lonesome strait to take the life of any living thing. 
From Cape Pillar I steered for Juan Fernandez, and on the 26th of April, fifteen days out, made that historic island right ahead. The blue hills of Juan Fernandez, high among the clouds, could be seen about thirty miles off. A thousand emotions thrilled me when I saw the island, and I bowed my head to the deck. We may mock the Oriental Salaam, but for my part I could find no other way of expressing myself. The wind being light through the day, the spray did not reach the island till night. With what wind there was to fill her sails, she stood close into shore on the northeast side, where it fell calm and remained so all night. I saw the twinkling of a small light farther along in a cove, and fired a gun, but got no answer, and soon the light disappeared altogether. I heard the sea booming against the cliffs all night, and realised that the ocean swell was still great, although from the deck of my little ship it was apparently small. From the cry of animals in the hills, which sounded fainter and fainter through the night, I judged that a light current was drifting the sloop from the land, though she seemed all night dangerously near the shore, for the land being very high, appearances were deceptive. Soon after daylight I saw a boat putting out towards me. As it pulled near it so happened that I picked up my gun which was on the deck, meaning only to put it below. But the people in the boat, seeing the piece in my hands, quickly turned and pulled back for shore, which was about four miles distant. There were six rowers in her, and I observed that they pulled with oars in oarlocks, after the manner of trained seamen, and so I knew they belonged to a civilised race. But their opinion of me must have been anything but flattering, when they mistook my purpose with the gun, and pulled away with all their might. I made them understand by signs, but not without difficulty, that I did not intend to shoot, that I was simply putting the piece in the cabin, and that I wished them to return. When they understood my meaning, they came back, and were soon on board. One of the party, whom the rest called King, spoke English. The others spoke Spanish. They had all heard of the voyage of the spray through the papers of Valparaiso, and were hungry for news concerning it. They told me of a war between Chile and the Argentine, which I had not heard of when I was there. I had just visited both countries, and I told them that, according to the latest reports, while I was in Chile, their own island was sunk. This same report that Juan Fernandez had sunk was current in Australia when I arrived there three months later. I had already prepared a pot of coffee and a plate of doughnuts, which after some words of civility the islanders stood up to and discussed with a will. After which they took the spray in tow of their boat, and made towards the island with her, at the rate of a good three knots. The man they called King took the helm, and with whirling it up and down he so rattled the spray that I thought she would never carry herself straight again. The others pulled away lustily with their oars. The king, I soon learned, was king only by courtesy. Having lived longer on the island than any other man in the world, thirty years, he was so dubbed. Juan Fernandez was then under the administration of a governor of Swedish nobility, so I was told. I was also told that his daughter could ride the wildest goat on the island. The governor at the time of my visit was away at Valparaiso with his family, to place his children at school. 
the king had been away once for a year or two, and in Rio de Janeiro had married a Brazilian woman, who followed his fortunes to the far-off island. He was himself a Portuguese and a native of the Azores. He had sailed in New Bedford whale-ships, and had steered a boat. All this I learnt, and more too, before we reached the anchorage. The sea-breeze coming in before long filled the spray's sails, and the experienced Portuguese mariner piloted her to a safe berth in the bay, where she was moored to a boy abreast the settlement. End of chapter 10 Recording by Alan Chant in Tunbridge, Kent, England www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk Chapter 11 of Sailing Alone Around the World This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant Sailing Alone Around the World by Joshua Slocum Chapter 11 Consisting of the islanders at Juan Fernandez entertained with Yankee doughnuts. The beauties of Robinson Crusoe's realm. The mountain monument to Alexander Selkirk. Robinson Crusoe's cave. A stroll with the children of the island. Westward ho with a friendly gale. A month's free sailing with the Southern Cross and the Sun for guides. Sighting the Marquesas Experience in Reckoning The spray being secured, the islanders returned to the coffee and doughnuts, and I was more than flattered when they did not slight my buns, as the professor had done in the Strait of Magellan. Between buns and doughnuts there was little difference except in name. Both had been fried in tallow, which was the strong point in both for there was nothing on the island fatter than a goat, and a goat is but a lean beast to make the best of it. So with a view to business I hooked my steel-yards to the boom at once, ready to weigh out tallow, there being no customs officer to say, Why do you do so? And before the sun went down the islanders had learned the art of making buns and doughnuts. I did not charge a high price for what I sold, but the ancient and curious coins I got in payment, some of them from the wreck of a galleon sunk in the bay no one knows when, I sold afterwards to antiquarians for more than face value. In this way I made a reasonable profit. I brought away money of all denominations from the island, and nearly all there was so far as I could find out. Juan Fernandez, as a place to call, is a lovely spot. The hills are well wooded, the valleys fertile, and pouring down through many ravines are streams of pure water. There are no serpents on the island, and no wild beasts other than pigs and goats, of which I saw a number, with possibly a dog or two. The people lived without the use of rum or beer of any sort. There was not a police officer or a lawyer among them. The domestic economy of the island was simplicity itself. 
the fashions of Paris did not affect the inhabitants, each dressed according to his taste. Although there was no doctor, the people were all healthy, and the children were all beautiful. There were about forty-five souls on the island all told. The adults were mostly from the mainland of South America. One lady there, from Chile, who made a flying jib for the spray, taking her pay in tallow, would be called a bell at Newport. Blessed island of Juan Fernandez! Why Alexander Selkirk ever left you was more than I could make out. A large ship, which had arrived some time before, on fire, had been stranded at the head of the bay, and as the sea smashed her to pieces on the rocks after the fire was drowned, the islanders picked up the timbers and utilised them in the construction of houses, which naturally presented a ship-like appearance. The house of the king of Juan Fernandez, Manuel Carroza by name, besides resembling the ark, wore a polished brass knocker on its only door, which was painted green. In front of this gorgeous entrance was a flag-mast, all at Owento, and near it a smart whale-boat painted red and blue, the delight of the king's old age. I, of course, made a pilgrimage to the old lookout place at the top of the mountain, where Selkirk spent many days peering into the distance for the ship which came at last. From a tablet fixed into the face of the rock I copied these words, inscribed in Arabic capitals. In memory of Alexander Selkirk, Mariner, a native of Largo in the county of Fife, Scotland, who lived on this island in complete solitude for four years and four months. He was landed from the Sank Ports galley, 96 tons, 18 guns, A.D. 1704, and was taken off in the Duke, privateer, 12th February, 1709. He died lieutenant of H.M.S. Weymouth, A.D. 1723, aged 47. This tablet is erected near Selkirk's lookout by Commodore Powell and the officers of H.M.S. Topaz, A.D. 1868. Footnote. Mr. J. Cuthbert Haddon, in the Century magazine for July 1899, shows that the tablet is in error as to the year of Selkirk's death. It should be 1721. The cave in which Selkirk dwelt while on the island is at the head of the bay, now called Robinson Crusoe Bay. It is around a bold headland west of the present anchorage and landing. Ships have anchored there, but it affords a very indifferent berth. Both of these anchorages are exposed to north winds, which, however, do not reach home with much violence. The holding ground being good in the first-named bay to the eastward, an anchorage there may be considered safe, although the undertow at times makes it wild riding. I visited Robinson Crusoe Bay in a boat, and with some difficulty landed through the surf near the cave, which I entered. I found it dry and inhabitable. It is located in a beautiful nook, sheltered by high mountains from all the severe storms that sweep over the island, which are not many, for it lies near the limits of the trade-wind regions, being in latitude thirty-five and a half degrees south. The island is about fourteen miles in length, 
east and west, and eight miles in width. Its height is over three thousand feet. Its distance from Chile, to which country it belongs, is about three hundred and forty miles. Juan Fernandez was once a convict station. A number of caves in which the prisoners were kept, damp, unwholesome dens, are no longer in use, and no more prisoners are sent to the island. The pleasantest day I spent on the island, if not the pleasantest on my whole voyage, was my last day on shore, but by no means because it was the last, when the children of the little community one and all went out with me to gather wild fruits for the voyage. We found quinces, peaches and figs, and the children gathered a basket of each. It takes very little to please children, and these little ones, never hearing a word in their lives except Spanish, made the hills ring with mirth at the sounds of words in English. They asked me the names of all manner of things on the island. We came to a wild fig-tree loaded with fruit, of which I gave them the English name. "'Figgies! Figgies!' they cried, while they picked till their baskets were full. But when I told them that the cabra they pointed out was only a goat, they screamed with laughter, and rolled on the grass in wild delight to think that a man had come to their island who would call a cabra a goat. The first child born on Juan Fernandez, I was told, had become a beautiful woman and was now a mother. Manuel Carosa and the good soul who followed him here from Brazil, had laid away their only child, a girl at the age of seven, in the little churchyard on the point. In the same half-acre were other mounds among the rough lava rocks, some marking the burial-place of native-born children, some the resting-place of seamen from passing ships, landed here to end days of sickness and get into a sailor's heaven. The greatest drawback I saw in the island was the want of a school. A class there would necessarily be small, but to some kind soul who loved teaching and quietude, life on Juan Fernandez would, for a limited time, be one of delight. On the morning of May 5, 1896, I sailed from Juan Fernandez, having feasted on many things, but on nothing sweeter than the adventure itself of a visit to the home and to the very cave of Robinson Crusoe. From the island the spray bore away to the north, passing the island of St. Felix, before she gained the trade winds, which seemed slow in reaching their limits. If the trades were tardy, however, when they did come they came with a bang, and made up for lost time and the spray under reefs, sometimes one, sometimes two, flew before a gale for a great many days, with a bone in her mouth, towards the Marquesas in the west, which she made on the forty-third day out, and still kept on sailing. My time was all taken up those days, not by standing at the helm, no man, I think, could stand or sit and steer a vessel round the world. I did better than that, for I sat and read my books, mended my clothes, or cooked my meals and ate them in peace. I had already found that it was not good to be alone, and so I made companionship with what there was around me, sometimes with the universe, and sometimes with my own insignificant self. But my books were always my friends. Let fail all else. 
nothing could be easier or more restful on my voyage in the trade winds. I sailed with a free wind day after day, marking the position of my ship on the chart with considerable precision. But this was done by intuition, I think, more than by slavish calculations. For one whole month my vessel held her course true. I had not the while so much as a light in the binnacle. The southern cross I saw every night abeam. The sun every morning came up astern. Every evening it went down ahead. I wished for no other compass to guide me, for these were true. If I doubted my reckoning after a long time at sea, I verified it by reading the clock aloft made by the great architect, and it was right. There was no denying that the comical side of the strange life appeared. I awoke sometimes to find the sun already shining into my cabin. I heard water rushing by, with only a thin plank between me and the depths, and I said, How is this? But it was all right. It was my ship on her course, sailing as no other ship had ever sailed before in the world. The rushing water along her side told me that she was sailing at full speed. I knew that no human hand was on the helm. I knew that all was well with the hands forward, and that there was no mutiny on board. The phenomena of ocean meteorology were interesting studies, even here in the trade winds. I observed that about every seven days the wind freshened and drew several points further than usual from the direction of the pole, that is, it went round from east-south-east to south-south-east, while at the same time a heavy swell rolled up from the south-west. All this indicated that gales were going on in the anti-trades. The wind then hauled day after day as it moderated, till it stood again at the normal point east-south-east. This is more or less the constant state of the winter trades in latitude twelve degrees south, where I ran down the latitude for weeks. The sun, we all know, is the creator of the trade winds, and of the wind system over all the earth. But ocean meteorology is, I think, the most fascinating of all. From Juan Fernandez to the Marquesas, I experienced six changes of these great palpitations of sea-winds, and of the sea itself, the effect of far-off gales. To know the laws that govern the winds, and to know that you know them, will give you an easy mind on your voyage around the world. Otherwise you may tremble at the appearance of every cloud. What is true of this in the trade winds is much more so in the variables, where changes run more to extremes. To cross the Pacific Ocean, even under the most favourable circumstances, brings you for many days close to nature, and you realise the vastness of the sea. Slowly, but surely, the mark of my little ship's course on the track chart reached out on the ocean and across it while at her utmost speed she marked with her keel still slowly the sea that carried her. On the forty-third day from land, a long time to be at sea alone, the sky being beautifully clear, and the moon being in distance with the sun, I drew up my sextant for sights. I found from the results of three observations, after long wrestling with lunar tables, that her longitude by observation agreed within five miles of that by dead reckoning. This was wonderful. 
Both, however, might be in error, but somehow I felt confident that both were nearly true, and that in a few hours more I should see land. And so it happened, for then I made the island of Nukaviva, the southernmost of the Marquesas group, clear-cut and lofty. The verified longitude when abreast was somewhere between the two reckonings. This was extraordinary. All navigators will tell you that from one day to another a ship may lose or gain more than five miles in her sailing account, and again in the matter of lunars even expert lunarians are considered as doing clever work when they average within eight miles of the truth. I hope I am making it clear that I do not lay claim to cleverness or to slavish calculations in my reckonings. I think I have already stated that I kept my longitude at least mostly by intuition. A rotator log always towed astern, but so much has to be allowed for currents and for drift which the log never shows, that it is only an approximation after all to be corrected by one's own judgment from data of a thousand voyages and even then the master of the ship, if he be wise, cries out for the lead and the lookout. Unique was my experience in nautical astronomy from the deck of the spray, so much so that I feel justified in briefly telling it here. The first set of sights just spoken of put her many hundreds of miles west of my reckoning by account. I knew that this could not be correct. In about an hour's time I took another set of observations with the utmost care. The mean result of these was about the same as that of the first set. I asked myself why, with my boasted self-dependence, I had not done at least better than this. Then I went in search of a discrepancy in the tables, and I found it. In the tables I found that the column of figures from which I had got an important logarithm was in error. It was a matter I could prove beyond a doubt, and it made the difference as already stated. The tables being corrected, I sailed on with self-reliance unshaken, and with my tin clock fast asleep. The results of these observations naturally tickled my vanity, for I knew that it was something to stand on a great ship's deck and with two assistants take lunar observations approximately near the truth. As one of the poorest of American sailors, I was proud of the little achievement on the sloop, even by chance, though it may have been. I was en rapport now with my surroundings, and was carried on a vast stream where I felt the buoyancy of his hand, who made all the worlds. I realised the mathematical truth of their motions, so well known that astronomers compiled tables of their positions through the years and the days and the minutes of a day, with such precision that one coming along over the sea even five years later may, by their aid, find the standard time of any given meridian on the earth. To find local time is a simpler matter. The difference between local time and standard time is longitude expressed in time, four minutes, we all know, representing one degree. Thus briefly is the principle on which longitude is found independent of chronometers. The work of the lunarian, though seldom practised in these days of chronometers, is beautifully edifying, and there is nothing in the realm of navigation that lifts one's heart up more in adoration. End of chapter 11
Recording by Alan Chant in Tunbridge, Kent, England. www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk Chapter 12 of Sailing Alone Around the World This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant Sailing Alone Around the World by Joshua Slocum Chapter 12 Consisting of 72 Days Without a Port Whales and birds, a peep into the spray's galley, flying fish for breakfast, a welcome at Appia, a visit from Mrs. Robert Louis Stevenson, at Vailima, Samoan hospitality, arrested for fast riding, an amusing merry-go-round, teachers and pupils of Papatua College, at the mercy of sea-nymphs. To be alone forty-three days would seem a long time, but in reality even here winged moments flew lightly by, and instead of my hauling in for Nukahiva, which I could have made as well as not, I kept on for Samoa, where I wished to make my next landing. This occupied twenty-nine days more, making seventy-two days in all. I was not distressed in any way during that time. There was no end of companionship, the very coral reefs kept me company, or gave me no time to feel lonely, which is the same thing, and there were many of them now in my course to Samoa. First among the incidents of the voyage from Juan Fernandez to Samoa, which were not many, was a narrow escape from collision with a great whale that was absent-mindedly ploughing the ocean at night while I was below. The noise from his startled snort and the commotion he made in the sea as he turned to clear my vessel, brought me on deck in time to catch a wetting from the water he threw up with his flukes. The monster was apparently frightened. He headed quickly for the east. I kept on going west. Soon another whale passed, evidently a companion, following in its wake. I saw no more on this part of the voyage, nor did I wish to. Hungry sharks came about the vessel often when she neared islands or coral reefs. I own a satisfaction in shooting them, as one would a tiger. Sharks, after all, are the tigers of the sea. Nothing is more dreadful to the mind of a sailor, I think, than a possible encounter with a hungry shark. A number of birds were always about. Occasionally one poised on the mast to look the spray over, wondering, perhaps, at her odd wings, for she now wore her fuego mainsail, which, like Joseph's coat, was made of many pieces. Ships are less common on the southern seas than formerly. I saw not one in the many days crossing the Pacific. My diet on these long passages usually consisted of potatoes and salt cod and biscuits, which I made two or three times a week. I had always plenty of coffee, tea, sugar, and flour. I carried usually a good supply of potatoes, but before reaching Samoa I had a mishap which left me destitute of this highly prized sailor's luxury. 
Through meeting at Juan Fernandez, the Yankee Portuguese named Manuel Carosa, who nearly traded me out of my boots, I ran out of potatoes in mid-ocean, and was wretched thereafter. I prided myself on being something of a trader, but this Portuguese from the Azores, by way of New Bedford, who gave me new potatoes for the older ones I had got from the Columbia, a bushel or more of the best, left me no ground for boasting. He wanted mine, he said, for changey the seed. When I got to sea, I found that his tubers were rank and inedible, and full of fine yellow streaks of repulsive appearance. I tied the sack up, and returned to the few left of my old stock, thinking that maybe when I got right hungry the island potatoes would improve in flavour. Three weeks later I opened the bag again, and out flew millions of winged insects. Manuel's potatoes had all turned to moths. I tied them up quickly, and threw them all into the sea. Manuel had a crop of potatoes on hand, and as a hint to whalemen who are always eager to buy vegetables, he wished me to report whales off the island of Juan Fernandez, which I have already done, and big ones at that, but they were a long way off. Taking things by and large, as sailors say, I got on fairly well in the matter of provisions, even on the long voyage across the Pacific. I found always some small stores to help the fare of luxuries. What I lacked of fresh meat was made up in fresh fish, at least while in the trade winds, where flying fish crossing on the wing at night would hit the sails and fall on deck, sometimes two or three of them, sometimes a dozen. Every morning, except when the moon was large, I got a bountiful supply by merely picking them up from the lee scuppers. All tinned meats went begging. On the 16th of July, after considerable care and some skill and hard work, the spray cast anchor in Appia, in the kingdom of Samoa, about noon. My vessel being moored, I spread an awning, and instead of going at once on shore, I sat under it till late in the evening, listening with delight to the musical voices of the Samoan men and women. A canoe coming down the harbour with three young women in it, rested her paddles abreast the sloop. One of the fair crew, hailing with the naive salutation, Talofa Lee, love with you, chief, asked, Schoon come, me like? Love to you, I answered, and said, Yes. You man come lone? Again I answered, Yes. I don't believe that. You had other mans, and you eat em. At this sally the others laughed. What for you come long way? they asked. "'To hear you ladies sing,' I replied. "'Oh, Talofa Lee!' they all cried, and sang on. Their voices filled the air with music that rolled across to the grove of tall palms on the other side of the harbour, and back. Soon after this six young men came down in the United States Consul-General's boat, singing in parts and beating time with their oars. In my interview with them I came off better than with the damsels in the canoe. They bore an invitation from General Churchill for me to come and dine at the consulate. There was a lady's hand in things about the consulate in Samoa. Mrs. Churchill picked the crew for the General's boat, and saw to it that they wore a smart uniform, and that they could sing the Samoan boat-song, which in the first week Mrs. Churchill herself could sing like a native girl.
Next morning, bright and early, Mrs. Robert Louis Stevenson came to the spray and invited me to Valima the following day. I was, of course, thrilled when I found myself, after so many days of adventure, face to face with this bright woman, so lately the companion of the author who had delighted me on the voyage. The kindly eyes that looked me through and through sparkled when we compared notes of adventure. I marvelled at some of her experiences and escapes. She told me that, along with her husband, she had voyaged in all manner of rickety craft among the islands of the Pacific, reflectively adding, our tastes were similar. Following the subject of voyages, she gave me the four beautiful volumes of sailing directories for the Mediterranean, writing on the fly-leaf of the first, To Captain Slocum. These volumes have been read and re-read many times by my husband, and I am very sure that he would be pleased that they should be passed on to the sort of seafaring man that he liked above all others. Fanny V. de G. Stevenson Mrs. Stevenson also gave me a great directory of the Indian Ocean. It was not without a feeling of reverential awe that I received the books so nearly direct from the hand of Tusitala, who sleeps in the forest. Eolili, the spray will cherish your gift. The novelist's stepson, Mr. Lloyd Osborne, walked through the Vailima mansion with me, and bade me write my letters at the old desk. I thought it would be presumptuous to do that. It was sufficient for me to enter the hall of the floor on which the writer of tales, according to the Samoan custom, was wont to sit. Coming through the main street of Appia one day, with my hosts, all bound for the spray, Mrs. Stevenson on horseback, I walking by her side, and Mr. and Mrs. Osborne close in our wake on bicycles, at a sudden turn in the road, we found ourselves mixed with a remarkable native procession, with a somewhat primitive band of music in front of us, while behind was a festival, or a funeral, we could not tell which. Several of the stoutest men carried bales and bundles on poles. Some were evidently bales of tapper-cloth. The burden of one set of poles, heavier than the rest, however, was not so easily made out. My curiosity was whetted to know whether it was a roast pig, or something of a gruesome nature, and I inquired about it. "'I don't know,' said Mrs. Stevenson, "'whether this is a wedding or a funeral. Whatever it is, though, Captain, our place seems to be at the head of it.' The spray being in the stream, we boarded her from the beach abreast, in the little resided Gloucester dory, which had been painted a smart green. Our combined weight loaded it gunwale to the water, and I was obliged to steer with great care to avoid swamping. The adventure pleased Mrs. Stevenson greatly, and as we paddled along she sang, They went to sea in a pea-green boat. I could understand her saying of her husband and herself, Our tastes were similar. As I sailed further from the centre of civilization, I heard less and less of what would and what would not pay. Mrs. Stevenson, in speaking of my voyage, did not once ask me what I would make out of it. When I came to a Samoan village, the chief did not ask the price of gin, or say, How much will you pay for roast pig? But, Dollar, dollar, said he, white man no only dollar. 
Never mind, Dollar. The Tapo has prepared Ava. Let us drink and rejoice. The Tapo is the virgin hostess of the village. In this instance, it was Taloa, daughter of the chief. Our taro is good. Let us eat. On the tree there is fruit. Let the day go by. Why should we mourn over that? There are millions of days coming. The breadfruit is yellow in the sun, and from the cloth tree is Taloa's gown. Our house, which is good, cost but the labour of building it, and there is no lock on the door. While the days go thus in these southern islands, we at the north are struggling for the bare necessities of life. For food the islanders have only to put out their hand and take what nature has provided for them. If they plant a banana tree, their only care afterwards is to see that too many trees do not grow. They have great reason to love their country, and to fear the white man's yoke, for once harnessed to the plough, their life would no longer be a poem. The chief of the village of Keini, who was a tall and dignified Tonga man, could be approached only through an interpreter and talking man. It was perfectly natural for him to inquire the object of my visit, and I was sincere when I told him that my reason for casting anchor in Samoa was to see their fine men and fine women too. After a considerable pause the chief said, "'The captain has come a long way to see so little, but,' he added, "'the tapo must sit nearer the captain.' "'Yuck!' said Taloa, who had so nearly learned to say yes in English, and suiting the action to the word she hitched a peg nearer, all hands sitting in a circle upon mats. I was no less taken with the chief's eloquence than delighted with the simplicity of all he said. About him there was nothing pompous. He might have been taken for a great scholar or statesman, the least assuming of the men I met on the voyage. As for Taloa, a sort of Queen of the May, and the other Tapo girls, well, it is wise to learn as soon as possible the manners and customs of these hospitable people, and, meanwhile, not to mistake for over-familiarity that which is intended as honour to a guest. I was fortunate in my travels in the islands, and saw nothing to shake one's faith in native virtue. To the unconventional mind, the punctilious etiquette of Samoa is perhaps a little painful. For instance, I found that in partaking of Ava, the social bowl, I was supposed to toss a little of the beverage over my shoulder, or pretend to do so, and say, let the gods drink, and then drink it all myself, and the dish invariably a coconut shell being empty, I might not pass it politely as we would do, but politely throw it twirling across the mats at the tapo. My most grievous mistake while at the islands was made on a nag, which, inspired by a bit of good road, must needs break into a smart trot through a village. I was instantly hailed by the chief's deputy, who in an angry voice brought me to a halt. Perceiving that I was in trouble, I made signs for pardon, the safest thing to do though I did not know what offence I had committed. My interpreter coming along, however, put me right, but not until a long palaver had ensued. The deputy's hail, liberally translated, was, Ahoy there on the frantic speed! Know you not that it is against the law to ride thus through the village of our fathers?
I made what apologies I could, and offered to dismount and, like my servant, lead my nag by the bridle. This, the interpreter told me, would also be a grievous wrong, and so I again begged for pardon. I was summoned to appear before a chief, but my interpreter, being a wit as well as a bit of a rogue, explained that I was myself something of a chief, and should not be detained, being on a most important mission. In my own behalf I could only say that I was a stranger, but pleading all this, I knew I still deserved to be roasted, at which the chief showed a fine row of teeth and seemed pleased, but allowed me to pass on. The chief of the Tongas and his family at Kainini, returning my visit, bought presents of tapper-cloth and fruits. Taloa, the princess, brought a bottle of cocoa-nut oil for my hair, which another man might have regarded as coming late. It was impossible to entertain on the spray after the royal manner in which I had been received by the chief. His fare had included all that the land could afford. Fruits, fowl, fishes and flesh, a hog having been roasted whole. I set before them boiled salt pork and salt beef, with which I was well supplied, and in the evening took them all to a new amusement in the town, a rocking-horse merry-go-round, which they called a kiki, meaning theatre, and in a spirit of justice they pulled off the horses' tails, for the proprietors of the show, two hard-fisted countrymen of mine, I grieve to say, unceremoniously hustled them off for a new set, almost at the first spin. I was not a little proud of my Tonga friends. The chief, finest of them all, carried a portentous club. As for the theatre, through the greed of the proprietors it was becoming unpopular, and the representatives of the three great powers, in want of laws which they could enforce, adopted a vigorous foreign policy, taxing it twenty-five per cent on the gate money. This was considered a great stroke of legislative reform. It was the fashion of the native visitors to the spray to come over the bows, where they could reach the headgear and climb aboard with ease, and on going ashore to jump off the stern and swim away. Nothing could have been more delightfully simple. The modest natives wore lava-lava bathing dresses, a native cloth from the bark of the mulberry trees, and they did no harm to the spray. In summerland Samoa their coming and going was only a merry everyday scene. One day the head-teachers of Papatua College, Miss Schultz and Miss Moore, came on board with their ninety-seven young women students. They were all dressed in white, and each wore a red rose, and of course came in boats or canoes in the cold climate style. A merrier bevy of girls it would be difficult to find. As soon as they got on deck, by request of one of the teachers, they sang The Watch on the Rhine, which I had never heard before. And now, said they all, let's up anchor and away. But I had no inclination to sail from Samoa so soon. On leaving the spray, these accomplished young women each seized a palm branch or paddle, or whatever else would serve the purpose, and literally paddled her own canoe. Each could have swum as readily, and would have done, I dare say, had it not been for the holiday muslin. 
It was not uncommon in Appia to see a young woman swimming alongside a small canoe with a passenger for the spray. Mr. Trude, an old Eton boy, came in this manner to see me, and he exclaimed, "'Was ever King ferried in such state?' Then, suiting his action to the sentiment, he gave the damsel pieces of silver till the natives watching on shore yelled with envy. My own canoe, a small dugout, one day when it had rolled over with me, was seized by a party of fair bathers, and before I could get my breath almost, was towed around and around the spray, while I sat in the bottom of it, wondering what they would do next. But in this case there were six of them, three on a side, and I could not help myself. One of the sprites, I remember, was a young English lady, who made more sport of it than any of the others. End of chapter 12 Recording by Alan Chant in Tunbridge, Kent, England www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk Chapter 13 of Sailing Alone Around the World This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant Sailing Alone Around the World by Joshua Slocum Chapter 13 Consisting of Samoan Royalty King Malietoa Goodbye to Friends at Vailima Leaving Fiji to the South Arrival at Newcastle, Australia, The Yachts of Sydney, A Ducking on the Spray, Commodore Foy presents the sloop with a new suit of sails, On to Melbourne, A Shark that proved to be valuable, A Change of Course, The Rain of Blood, in Tasmania. At Appia I had the pleasure of meeting Mr. A. Young, the father of the late Queen Margaret, who was Queen of Manua from 1891 to 1895. Her grandfather was an English sailor who married a princess. Mr. Young is now the only survivor of the family, two of his children, the last of them all, having been lost in an island trader which a few months before had sailed, never to return. Mr. Young was a Christian gentleman, and his daughter Margaret was accomplished in graces that would become any lady. It was with pain that I saw in the newspapers a sensational account of her life and death, evidently taken from a paper in the supposed interest of a benevolent society, but without foundation in fact. And the startling headline saying, Queen Margaret of Manua is dead, could hardly be called news in 1898, the Queen having then been dead three years. While, hobnobbing as it were with royalty, I called on the King himself, the late Malietoa. King Malietoa was a great ruler. He never got less than forty-five dollars a month for the job, as he told me himself, and this amount had lately been raised, so that he could live on the fat of the land, and not any longer be called Tin of Salmon Malietoa, by graceless beachcombers. 
As my interpreter and I entered the front door of the palace, the king's brother, who was viceroy, sneaked in through a taroa patch by the back way, and sat cowering by the door while I told my story to the king. Mr. W. of New York, a gentleman interested in missionary work, had charged me when I sailed to give his remembrance to the king of the cannibal islands. Other islands, of course, being meant, but the Gug King Maliatoa, notwithstanding that his people had not eaten a missionary in a hundred years, received the message himself, and seemed greatly pleased to hear so directly from the publishers of the Missionary Review, and wished me to make his compliments in return. His Majesty then excused himself, while I talked with his daughter. The beautiful Feemu Semi, a name signifying to make the sea burn, and soon reappeared in the full-dress uniform of the German commander-in-chief, Emperor William himself, for stupidly enough I had not sent my credentials ahead that the king might be in full regalia to receive me. Calling a few days later to say good-bye to Feemu Sami, I saw King Maliatoa for the last time. Of the landmarks in the pleasant town of Appia, my memory rests first on the little school just back of the London Missionary Society coffee-house and reading-rooms, where Mrs. Bell taught English to about a hundred native children, boys and girls. Brighter children you will not find anywhere. "'Now, children,' said Mrs. Bell, when I called one day, "'let us show the captain that we know something about the Cape Horn he passed in the spray.' at which a lad of nine or ten years stepped nimbly forward, and read Basil Hall's fine description of the great cape, and read it well. He afterwards copied the essay for me in a clear hand. Calling to say good-bye to my friends at Vailima, I met Mrs. Stevenson in her Panama hat, and went over the estate with her. Men were at work clearing the land, and to one of them she gave an order to cut a couple of bamboo-trees for the spray from a clump she had planted four years before, and which had grown to the height of sixty feet. I used them for spare spars, and the butt of one made a serviceable jiboom on the homeward journey. I had then only to take Arva with the family, and be ready for sea. This ceremony, important among Samoans, was conducted after the native fashion. A, tri a triton horn was sounded to let us know when the beverage was ready, and in response we all clapped hands. The bout being in honour of the spray, it was my turn first, after the custom of the country, to spill a little over my shoulder, but having forgotten the Samoan for let the gods drink, I repeated the equivalent in Russian and Chinook, as I remembered a word in each whereupon Mr. Osborne pronounced me a confirmed Samoan. Then I said Tafar to my good friends of Samoa, and all wishing the spray bon voyage, she stood out of the harbour August 20, 1896, and continued on her course. A sense of loneliness seized upon me as the islands faded astern, and as a remedy for it I crowded on sail for lovely Australia, which was not a strange land to me, but for long days in my dreams Vailima stood before the prow. The spray had barely cleared the islands when a sudden burst of the trades brought her down to close reefs, 
and she reeled off one hundred and eighty-four miles the first day, of which I counted forty miles of current in her favour. Finding a rough sea, I swung her off free, and sailed north of the Horn Islands, also north of Fiji instead of south as I had intended, and coasted down the west side of the archipelago. Thence I sailed direct for New South Wales, passing south of New Caledonia, and arrived at Newcastle after a passage of forty-two days, mostly of storms and gales. One particular severe gale, encountered near New Caledonia, foundered the American clipper-ship Patrician further south. Again nearer the coast of Australia, when, however, I was not aware that the gale was extraordinary, a French mail-steamer from New Caledonia for Sydney, blown considerably out of her course, on her arrival reported it an awful storm, and to inquiring friends said, Oh my! We don't know what has become of the little sloop spray. We saw her in the thick of the storm. The spray was all right, lying to like a duck. She was under a goose's wing mainsail, and she had a dry deck, while her passengers on the steamer, I heard later, were up to their knees in water in the saloon. When their ship arrived at Sydney, they gave the captain a purse of gold for his skill and seamanship in bringing them safe to port. The captain of the spray got nothing of this sort. In this gale I made the land about Seal Rocks, where the steamship Catherton, with many lives, was lost a short time before. I was many hours off the rocks, beating back and forth, but weathered them at last. I arrived at Newcastle in the teeth of a gale of wind. It was a stormy season. The government pilot, Captain Cumming, met me at the harbour bar, and with the assistance of a steamer carried my vessel to a safe berth. Many visitors came on board, the first being the United States Consul, Mr. Brown. Nothing was too good for the spray here. All government dues were remitted, and after I had rested a few days, a port pilot with a tug carried her to sea again, and she made along the coast towards the harbour of Sydney, where she arrived on the following day, October 10, 1896. I came to in a snug cove near Mandley for the night, the Sydney Harbour police boat giving me a pluck into anchorage, while they gathered data from an old scrapbook of mine which seemed to interest them. Nothing escapes the vigilance of the New South Wales police. Their reputation is known the world over. They made a shrewd guess that I could give them some useful information, and they were the first to meet me. Someone said they came to arrest me, and—well, let it go at that. Summer was approaching, and the harbour of Sydney was blooming with yachts. Some of them came down to the weather-beaten spray and sailed round her at Shalcott, where she took a berth for a few days. At Sydney I was at once among friends. The spray remained at the various watering-places in the great port for several weeks, and was visited by many agreeable people, frequently by officers of HMS Orlando and their friends. Captain Fisher, the commander, with a party of young ladies from the city and gentlemen belonging to his ship, came one day to pay me a visit in the midst of a deluge of rain. I never saw it rain harder, even in Australia. But they were out for fun, and rain could not dampen their feelings, however hard it poured. But as ill luck would have it, 
a young gentleman of another party on board, in the full uniform of a very great yacht-club, with brass buttons enough to sink him, stepping quickly to get out of the wet, tumbled holus bolus, head and heels, into a barrel of water I had been coopering, and being a short man was soon out of sight, and nearly drowned before he was rescued. It was the nearest to a casualty on the spray in her whole course, so far as I know. The young man, having come on board with compliments, made the mishap most embarrassing. It had been decided by his club that the spray could not be officially recognised, for the reason that she brought no letters from yacht clubs in America. And so I say it seemed all the more embarrassing and strange that I should have caught at least one of the members in a barrel, and two, when I was not fishing for yachtsmen. The typical Sydney boat is a handy sloop of great beam and enormous sail-carrying power, but a capsize is not uncommon, for they carry sail like Vikings. In Sydney I saw all manner of craft, from the smart steam-launch and sailing-cutter to the smallest sloop and canoe pleasuring on the bay. Everybody owned a boat. If a boy in Australia has not the means to buy him a boat, he builds one, and it is usually not one to be ashamed of. The spray shed her Joseph's coat, the Fuego mainsail in Sydney, and wearing a new suit, the handsome present of Commodore Foy, she was flagship of the Johnston Bay Flying Squadron, when the circumnavigators of Sydney Harbour sailed in their annual regatta. They recognised the spray as belonging to a club of her own, and with more Australian sentiment than fastidiousness, gave her credit for her record. Time flew fast those days in Australia, and it was December 6, 1896, when the spray sailed from Sydney. My intention was now to sail round Cape Leeuwin, direct for Mauritius on my way home, and so I coasted along towards Bass Strait in that direction. There was little to report on this part of the voyage except changeable winds, busters, and rough seas. The 12th of December, however, was an exceptional day, with a fine coast wind northeast. The spray early in the morning passed Twofold Bay, and later Cape Bandoro in a smooth sea with land close aboard. The lighthouse on the cape dipped a flag to the spray's flag, and children on the balconies of a cottage near the shore waved handkerchiefs as she passed by. There were only a few people all told on the shore, but the scene was a happy one. I saw festoons of evergreen in token of Christmas near at hand. I saluted the merrymakers, wishing them a Merry Christmas, and could hear them say, I wish you the same. From Cape Bundoro I passed by Cliff Island in Bass Strait, and exchanged signals with the lightkeepers while the spray worked up under the island. The wind howled that day, while the sea broke over their rocky home. A few days later, December 17, the spray came in close under Wilson's promontory, again seeking shelter. The keeper of the light at that station, Mr. J. Clark, came on board and gave me directions for Waterloo Bay, about three miles to leeward, for which I bore up at once, finding good anchorage there in a sandy cove protected from all westerly and northerly winds. Anchored here was the Ketch Secret, a fisherman, and the Mary of Sydney, a steam ferry-boat fitted for whaling. 
The captain of the Mary was a genius, and an Australian genius at that, and smart. His crew, from a sawmill up the coast, had not one of them seen a live whale when they shipped, but they were boatmen after an Australian's own heart, and the captain had told them that to kill a whale was no more than to kill a rabbit. They believed him, and that settled it. As luck would have it, the very first one they saw on their cruise, although an ugly humpback, was a dead whale in no time. Captain Young, the master of the Mary, killing the monster at a single thrust of a harpoon. It was taken in tow for Sydney, where they put it on exhibition. Nothing but whales interested the crew of the gallant Mary, and they spent most of their time here gathering fuel along shore for a cruise on the grounds off Tasmania. Whenever the word whale was mentioned in the hearing of these men, their eyes glistened with excitement. We spent three days in the quiet cove, listening to the wind outside. Meanwhile Captain Young and I explored the shores, visited abandoned miners' pits, and prospected for gold ourselves. Our vessels, parting company the morning they sailed, stood away like seabirds, each on its own course. The wind for a few days was moderate, and with unusual luck of fine weather, the spray made Melbourne heads on the 22nd of December, and taken in tow by the steam-tug Racer, was brought into port. Christmas Day was spent at a berth in the river Yarrow, but I lost little time in shifting to St Kilda, where I spent nearly a month. The spray paid no port charges in Australia or anywhere else on the voyage, except at Perambuco, till she poked her nose into the custom-house at Melbourne where she was charged tonnage dues, in this instance sixpence a ton on the gross. The collector extracted six shillings and sixpence, taking off nothing for the fraction under thirteen tons, her exact gross being twelve point seven zero tons. I squared the matter by charging people sixpence each for coming on board, and when this business got dull, I caught a shark and charged them sixpence each to look at that. The shark was twelve feet six inches in length, and carried a progeny of twenty-six, not one of them less than two feet in length. A slit of a knife let them out in a canoe full of water, which, changed constantly, kept them alive one whole day. In less than an hour from the time I heard of the ugly brute, it was on deck and on exhibition, with rather more than the amount of the spray's tonnage dues already collected. Then I hired a good Irishman, Tom Howard by name, who knew all about sharks, both on the land and in the sea, and could talk about them, to answer questions and lecture. When I found that I could not keep abreast of the questions, I turned the responsibility over to him. Returning from the bank, where I had been to deposit money early in the day, I found Howard in the midst of a very excited crowd, telling imaginary habits of the fish. It was a good show, the people wished to see it, and it was my wish that they should, but owing to his over-stimulated enthusiasm, I was obliged to let Howard resign. The income from the show and the proceeds of the tallow I had gathered in the Strait of Magellan, the last of which I had disposed of to a German soap-boiler at Samoa, put me in ample funds. 
January 24, 1897, found the spray again in tow of the Tug Racer, leaving Hobson's Bay after a pleasant time in Melbourne and St. Kilda, which had been protracted by a succession of southwest winds that seemed never-ending. In the summer months, that is December, January, February, and sometimes March, east winds are prevalent through Bass Strait and round Cape Leeuwin, but owing to a vast amount of ice drifting up from the Antarctic, this was all changed now, and emphasised with much bad weather, so much that I considered it impracticable to pursue the course further. Therefore, instead of thrashing round cold and stormy Cape Leeuwin, I decided to spend a pleasanter and more profitable time in Tasmania, waiting for the season for favourable winds through Torres Strait, by way of the Great Barrier Reef, the route I finally decided on. To sail this course would be taking advantage of anticyclones which never fail, and besides it would give me the chance to put foot on the shores of Tasmania, round which I had sailed years before. I should mention that while I was at Melbourne there occurred one of those extraordinary storms, sometimes called Rain of Blood, the first of the kind in many years about Australia. The blood came from a fine brick-dust matter, afloat in the air from the deserts. A rainstorm settling in brought down this dust simply as mud. It fell in such quantities that a bucketful was collected from the sloop's awnings, which was spread at the time. When the wind blew hard, and I was obliged to furl awnings, her sails unprotected on the booms got mud-stained from clue to earring. The phenomena of dust-storms, well understood by scientists, are not uncommon on the coast of Africa. Reaching some distance out over the sea, they frequently cover the track of ships, as in the case of the one through which the spray passed in the earlier part of her voyage. Sailors no longer regard them with superstitious fear, but our credulous brothers of the land cry out, Rain of blood! at the first splash of the awful mud. The rip of Port Philip Heads, a wild place, was rough when the spray entered Hobson's Bay from the sea, and was rougher when she stood out. But, with sea-room and under-sail, she made good weather immediately after passing it. It was only a few hours' sail to Tasmania across the strait, the wind being fair and blowing hard. I carried the St. Kilda shark along, stuffed with hay, and deposed it to Professor Porter, the curator of the Victoria Museum of Launceston, which is at the head of the Tamar. For many a long day to come may be seen there the shark of St. Kilda. Alas! The good but mistaken people of St. Kilda, when the illustrated journals with pictures of my shark reached their newsstands, flew into a passion, and swept all the papers containing mention of fish into the fire, for St. Kilda was a watering-place, and the idea of a shark there. But my show went on. The spray was berthed on the beach at a small jetty at Lorceston, while the tide driven in by the gale that brought her up the river was unusually high, and she lay there hard and fast, with not enough water around her at any time after to wet one's feet till she was ready to sail, then to float her the ground was dug from under her keel. In this snug place I left her in charge of three children, 
while I made journeys among the hills, and rested my bones for the coming voyage on the moss-covered rocks at the gorge hard by, and among the ferns I found wherever I went. My vessel was well taken care of. I never returned without finding that the decks had been washed, and that one of the children, my nearest neighbour's little girl from across the road, was at the gangway attending to visitors, while the others, a brother and sister, sold marine curios such as were in the cargo on ship's account. They were a bright, cheerful crew, and people came a long way to hear them tell the story of the voyage, and of the monsters of the deep the captain had slain. I had only to keep myself away to be a hero of the first water, and it suited me very well to do so, and to rusticate in the forests and among the streams. End of chapter 13 Recording by Alan Chant in Tunbridge, Kent, England www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk Chapter 14 of Sailing Alone Around the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Alan Chant. Sailing Alone Around the World by Joshua Slocum. Chapter 14. Consisting of A Testimonial from a Lady. Cruising Around Tasmania. The skipper delivers his first lecture on the voyage. Abundant provisions. An inspection of the spray for safety at Devonport. Again at Sydney. Northward bound for the Torres Strait. An amateur shipwreck. Friends on the Australian coast. Perils of a coral sea. February 1, 1897. On returning to my vessel, I found waiting for me the letter of sympathy which I subjoin. A lady sends Mr. Slocum the enclosed five-pound note as a token of her appreciation of his bravery in crossing the wide seas on so small a boat, and all alone, without human sympathy to help when danger threatened. All success to you. To this day I do not know who wrote it, or to whom I am indebted for the generous gift it contained. I could not refuse a thing so kindly meant, but promised myself to pass it on with interest at the first opportunity, and this I did before leaving Australia. The season of fair weather around the north of Australia being yet a long way off, I sailed to other ports in Tasmania, where it is fine the year round the first of these being Beauty Point, near which are Beaconsfield and the great Tasmanian gold-mine, which I visited in turn. I saw much grey, uninteresting rock being hoisted out of the mine there, and hundreds of stamps crushing it into powder. People told me there was gold in it, and I believed what they said. I remember Beauty Point for its shady forest, and for the road among the tall gum-trees. While there the Governor of New South Wales, Lord Hampton, and his family, came in on a steam-yacht sightseeing. The spray, anchored near the landing-pier, threw her bunting out, of course, 
and probably a more insignificant craft bearing the stars and stripes was never seen in those waters. However, the governor's party seemed to know why it floated there, and all about the spray, and when I heard His Excellency say, Introduce me to the captain, or introduce the captain to me, whichever it was, I found myself at once in the presence of a gentleman and a friend, and one greatly interested in my voyage. If any one of the party was more interested than the governor himself, it was the Honourable Margaret, his daughter. On leaving, Lord and Lady Hampton promised a rendezvous with me on board the spray at the Paris Exposition in 1900. "'If we live,' they said, and I added for my part, "'dangers of the sea excepted.' From Beauty Point the spray visited Georgetown, near the mouth of the river Tamar. This little settlement, I believe, marks the place where the first footprints were made by whites in Tasmania, though it never grew to be more than a hamlet. Considering that I had seen something of the world, and finding people here interested in adventure, I talked the matter over before my first audience in a little hall by the country road. A piano having been brought in from a neighbour's, I was helped out by the severe thumping it got, and by a Tommy Atkins song from a strolling comedian. People came from a great distance, and the audience, all told, netted the house about three pounds sterling. The owner of the hall, a kind lady from Scotland, would take no rent, so my lecture from the start was a success. From this snug little place I made sail for Devonport, a thriving place on the River Mersey, a few hours' sail westward along the coast, and fast becoming the most important port in Tasmania. Large steamers enter there now, and carry away great cargoes of farm produce, but the spray was the first vessel to bring the stars and stripes to the port, the harbour-master Captain Murray told me, and so it is written in the port records. For that great distinction the spray enjoyed many civilities, while she rode comfortably at anchor in her port-duster awning that covered her from stem to stern. From the magistrate's house, Malana, on the point, she was saluted by the jack, both on coming in and on going out, and dear Mrs. Aikenhead, the mistress of Malana, supplied the spray with jams and jellies of all sorts, by the case, prepared from the fruits of her own rich garden, enough to last all the way home and to spare. Mrs. Wood, further up the harbour, put up bottles of raspberry wine for me. At this point, more than ever before, I was in the land of good cheer. Mrs. Powell sent on board chutney prepared, as we prepare it in India. Fish and game were plentiful here, and the voice of the gobbler was heard, and from Pardo further up the country came an enormous cheese. And yet people inquire, what did you live on? What did you eat? I was haunted by the beauty of the landscape all about, of the natural ferneries then disappearing, and of the domed forest trees on the slopes, and was fortunate in meeting a gentleman intent on preserving in art the beauties of his country. He presented me with many reproductions from his collection of pictures, also many originals to show my friends. By another gentleman I was charged to tell the glories of Tasmania in every land and on every occasion. 
This was Dr. McCall, M.L.C. The doctor gave me useful hints on lecturing. It was not without misgivings, however, that I filled away on this new course, and I am free to say that it is only by the kindness of sympathetic audiences that my oratorical bark was held on even keel. Soon after my first talk, the kind doctor came to me with words of approval. As in many other of my enterprises, I had gone about it at once and without second thought. "'Man, man,' said he, "'great nervousness is only a sign of brain, and the more brain a man has, the longer it takes him to get over the affliction. But,' he added reflectively, "'you will get over it.' However, in my own behalf, I think it only fair to say that I am not yet entirely cured. The spray was hauled out on the marine railway at Devonport, and examined carefully top and bottom, but was found absolutely free from the destructive Teredo, and sound in all respects. To protect her further against the ravages of these insects, the bottom was coated once more with copper paint for she would have to sail through the coral and arafura seas before refitting again. Everything was done to fit her for all the known dangers. But it was not without regret that I looked forward to the day of sailing from a country of so many pleasing associations. If there was a moment in my voyage when I could have given it up, it was there and then. But no vacancies for a better post being open, I weighed anchor September 16, 1897, and again put to sea. The season of summer was then over. Winter was rolling up from the south, with fair winds for the north. A foretaste of winter wind sent the spray flying round Cape Howe, and as far as Cape Bandoro further along, which she passed on the following day, retracing her course northwards. This was a fine run and boded good for the long voyage home from the Antipodes. My old Christmas friends on Bandoro seemed to be up and moving when I came the second time by their cape, and we exchanged signals again, while the sloop sailed along as before in a smooth sea and close to the shore. The weather was fine, with clear sky the rest of the passage to Fort Jackson, Sydney, where the spray arrived April 22, 1897, and anchored in Watson's Bay, near the heads, in eight fathoms of water. The harbour, from the heads to Parramatta up the river, was more than ever alive with boats and yachts of every class. It was indeed a scene of animation, hardly equalled in any other part of the world. A few days later the bay was flecked with tempestuous waves, and none but stout ships carried sail. I was in a neighbouring hotel then, nursing a neuralgia which I had picked up along shore, and had only that moment got a glance of just the stern of a large, unimaginable steamship passing the range of my window as she forged in by the point, when the bell-boy burst into my room, shouting that the spray had gone bung. I tumbled out quickly, to learn that bung meant that a large steamship had run into her, and that it was the one of which I saw the stern, the other end of her having hit the spray. It turned out, however, that no damage was done, beyond the loss of an anchor and chain, which from the shock of the collision had parted at the hawse. 
I had nothing at all to complain of, though, in the end, for the captain, after he clubbed his ship, took the spray in tow up the harbour, clear of all dangers, and sent her back again in charge of an officer and three men to her anchorage in the bay, with a polite note saying he would repair any damages done. But what yawing she made of it when she came with a stranger at the helm! Her old friend the pilot of the Pinter would not have been guilty of such lubberly work. But to my great delight they got her into a berth, and the neuralgia left me then, or was forgotten. The captain of the steamer, like a true seaman, kept his word, and his agent, Mr. Collishaw, handed me on the very next day the price of the lost anchor and chain, with something over for anxiety of mind. I remember that he offered me twelve pounds at once, but my lucky number being thirteen, we made the account thirteen pounds, which squared all accounts. I sailed again May 9 before a strong southwest wind, which sent the spray gallantly on as far as Port Stephens, where it fell calm and then came up ahead. But the weather was fine, and so remained for many days, which was a great change from the state of the weather experienced here some months before. Having a full set of admiralty sheet charts of the coast and barrier reef, I felt easy in mind. Captain Fisher, R.N., who had steamed through the barrier passages in HMS Orlando, advised me from the first to take this route, and I did not regret coming back to it now. The wind, for a few days, after passing Port Stephens, Seal Rocks, and Cape Hawk, was light and dead ahead. But these points are photographed on my memory from the trial of beating round them some months before when bound the other way. But now, with a good stock of books on board, I fell to reading day and night, leaving this pleasant occupation merely to trim sails or tack, or to lie down and rest, while the spray nibbled up the miles. I tried to compare my state with that of old circumnavigators, who sailed exactly over the route which I took from Cape Fairy Islands, or further back, to this point and beyond. But there was no comparison so far as I had got. Their hardships and romantic escapes, those of them who escaped death and worse sufferings, did not enter into my experience, sailing all alone around the world. For me, is left to tell only of pleasant experiences, till finally my adventures are prosy and tame. I had just finished reading some of the most interesting of the old voyages in Wobegon ships, and was already near Port Macquarie on my own cruise, when I made out, May 13, a modern dandy craft in distress, anchored on the coast. Standing in for her, I found that she was the cutter-yacht Akbar, which had sailed from Watson's Bay about three days ahead of the spray, and that she had run at once into trouble. Footnote. Akbar was not her registered name, which need not be told. No wonder she did so. It was a case of babes in the wood or butterflies at sea. Her owner, on his maiden voyage, was all duck trousers, the captain, distinguished for the enormous yachtsman's cap he wore, 
was a Murrumbidgee whaler before he took command of the Akbar, and the navigating officer, poor fellow, was almost as deaf as a post, and nearly as stiff and immovable as a post in the ground. Footnote. The Murrumbidgee is a small river winding among the mountains of Australia, and would be the last place in which to look for a whale. These three jolly tars comprised the crew. None of them knew more about the sea or about a vessel than a newly-born babe knows about another world. They were bound for New Guinea, so they said. Perhaps it was as well that three tender feet so tender as those never reached that destination. The owner, whom I had met before he sailed, wanted to race the poor old spray to Thursday Island en route. I declined the challenge naturally, on the ground of the unfairness of three young yachtsmen in a clipper against an old sailor all alone in a craft of coarse build. Besides that, I would not on any account race in the coral sea. "'Spray ahoy!' they all hailed now. "'What's the weather going to be? "'Is it a-going to blow? "'And don't you think we'd better go back to re-re-re-refit?' "'I thought, if you ever get back, don't refit.' "'But I said, "'Give me the end of a rope, "'and I'll tow you into yon port further along. "'And on your lives,' I urged, "'do not go back round Cape Hawk.' for it's winter to the south of it. They proposed making for Newcastle under jury sails, for their mainsail had been blown to ribbons, even the jigger had been blown away, and her rigging flew at loose ends. The Akbar, in a word, was a wreck. "'Up anchor!' I shouted. "'Up anchor, and let me tow you into Fort Macquarie, twelve miles north of this.' "'No!' cried the owner. We'll go back to Newcastle. We missed Newcastle on the way coming. We didn't see the light, and it was not thick either. This he shouted very loudly, ostensibly for my hearing, but closer even than necessary, I thought, to the ear of the navigating officer. Again I tried to persuade them to be towed into the port of refuge so near at hand. It would have cost them only the trouble of weighing their anchor and passing me a rope. Of this I assured them. But they declined even this, in sheer ignorance of a rational course. "'What is your depth of water?' I asked. "'Don't know. We lost our lead. All the chain is out. We sounded with our anchor.' "'Send your dinghy over, and I'll give you a lead.' "'We lost our dinghy, too,' they cried. "'God is good, else you would have lost yourselves. "'And farewell,' was all I could say. "'The trifling service proffered by the spray would have saved their vessel. "'Report us,' they cried as I stood on. "'Report us with sails blown away.' and that we don't care a dash, and are not afraid. Then there is no hope for you. And again, farewell. I promised I would report them, and I did so at the first opportunity, and out of humane reasons I do so again. 
On the following day I spoke the steamship Sherman bound down the coast, and reported the yacht in distress, and that it would be an act of humanity to tow her somewhere away from her exposed position on an open coast. That she did not get a tow from the steamer was from no lack of funds to pay the bill, for the owner, lately heir to a few hundred pounds, had the money with him. The proposed voyage to New Guinea was to look that island over with a view to its purchase. It was about eighteen days before I heard of the Akbar again, which was on the 31st of May, when I reached Cooktown on the Endeavour River, where I found this news. May 31. The yacht Akbar from Sydney to New Guinea, three hands on board, lost at Crescent Head. The crew saved. So it took them several days to lose the yacht, after all. After speaking the distressed Akbar and the Sherman, the voyage of many days was uneventful save in the pleasant incident on May 16, of a chat by signal with the people on South Solitary Island, a dreary stone heap in the ocean just off the coast of New South Wales, in latitude thirty degrees twelve minutes south. "'What vessel is that?' they asked, as the sloop came abreast of their island. For answer I tried them with the stars and stripes at the peak. Down came their signals at once, and up went the British ensign instead, which they dipped heartily. I understood from this that they made out my vessel, and knew all about her, for they asked no more questions. They didn't even ask if the voyage would pay— but they threw out this friendly message, wishing you a pleasant voyage, which at that very moment I was having. May 19, the spray passing the Tweed River, was signalled from Danger Point, where those on shore seemed most anxious about the state of my health, for they asked if all hands were well, to which I could say yes. On the following day the spray rounded Great Sandy Cape, and what is a notable event in every voyage picked up the trade winds, and these winds followed her now for many thousands of miles, never ceasing to blow from a moderate gale to a mild summer breeze, except at rare intervals. From the pitch of the Cape was a noble light seen twenty-seven miles, passing from this to Lady Elliot Light, which stands on an island as a sentinel at the gateway of the barrier reef, the spray was at once in the fairway leading north. Poets have sung of beacon light and of pharos, but did ever poet behold a great light flash up before his path on a dark night in the midst of a coral sea? If so, he knew the meaning of his song. The spray had sailed for hours in suspense, evidently stemming a current. Almost mad with doubt, I grasped the helm to throw her head offshore, when, blazing out of the sea, was the light ahead. Escalibur! cried all hands, and rejoiced, and sailed on. The spray was now in a protected sea and smooth water, the first she had dipped her keel into since leaving Gibraltar, and a change it was from having the heaving of the misnamed Pacific Ocean. The Pacific is, perhaps, on the whole, no more boisterous than other oceans, though I feel quite safe in saying that it is not more Pacific, except in name. 
It is often wild enough in one part or another. I once knew a writer who, after saying beautiful things about the sea, passed through a Pacific hurricane, and he became a changed man. But where, after all, would be the poetry of the sea, if there were no wild waves? At last here was the spray in the midst of a sea of coral. The sea itself might be called smooth indeed, but coral rocks are always rough, sharp, and dangerous. I trusted now to the mercies of the maker of all reefs, keeping a good lookout at the same time for perils on every hand. Lo, the barrier reef, and the waters of many colours studded all about with enchanted islands. I behold among them, after all, many safe harbours, else my vision is astray. On the 24th of May, the sloop, having made 110 miles a day from Danger Point, now entered Whitsunday Pass, and that night sailed through among the islands. When the sun rose next morning, I looked back, and regretted having gone by while it was dark, for the scenery far astern was varied and charming. End of chapter 14 Read by Alan Chant in Tunbridge, Kent, England www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? I'm Kat, founder of Ritual. We're making traceability the new standard for the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I couldn't find a multivitamin I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested, and clean label project certified. Oh, and our vitamin D3? It comes from sustainably harvested lichen from England, not sheep. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.